This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Bogner, co-founder and editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. My guest on the episode today is Lauren Limbach of New Belgium Brewing. This episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Keg Logistics. Whether you're a startup or a national brewer, you can mix and match keg programs as your brewery grows. Own your kegs by building equity with every payment through their rent-to-own program. Their pay-per-fill solution is perfect for expanding to out-of-state markets and let their flex-term rentals cover summer season needs. Exporting beer to or from the EU, ship your beer in their one-way steel kegs. Keg Logistics covers your freight needs and can ship kegs, beer, and everything else that hits your brewery's dock. Welcome, Lauren Limbach, to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Thank you so much. Lauren, for some of you, uh, I, she is uh, legendary within the brewing and sour beer world. In my own mind. In your own mind. Uh, <laughs> you are an influential person in the history of uh, of sour beer in the United States. Lauren was one of the pioneers at New Belgium of the sour program and got started, what, 20 years ago this yep. year? This is my anniversary uh, plus one month. So tell me about those early days. Uh, you know, New Belgium, you know, in the, in the late 90s, craft beer was a different thing than it is right now. And certainly the concept of making sour beer and you know, I mean sour beer is an incredibly marginal thing uh, people just wasn't a lot of consumer demand for it it had to be a, a crazy leap to say hey here we are making a bunch of fat tire let's also just get some barrels and make sour beer yeah I think not only sour beer but more of the specialty kind of the um, out there ingredients kind of beer both all of those things were definitely not happening and we actually named you can kind of tell the um, the names of our first sour beer and then our series our special series said a lot about the time um, La Folie, you know a, a foolish financial endeavor um, and the lips of faith was like the leap of faith that you know they just I, I know this sounds crazy buy it and you'll be happy kind of thing and both of those things are just so not apt at all anymore and entire breweries are solely um set around specialty um kind of more of the wild um spontaneous sour um mixed culture you know crazy ingredients you know grew it only breweries (laughs) and so i think that that's in when i started in 1998 january 1998 um it our barrel program was literally about to happen the next month we so this is our 20th anniversary as well for our barrel program we started with the nine barrels in february of um, 1998 um and that started the grand experiment um it wasn't supposed to be lucrative it was supposed to be um educational and entertaining for us um as we did this um we, we did a lot of tastings we did a lot of talking at the end of Thursdays and that that's kind of how the barrel program started was more of an education into what this thing is like having barrels and putting bacteria in wild yeast and what happens and the blending portion of it um, and understanding how to kind of grow your own culture that ends up being almost a fingerprint of your of your brewery. 
So there weren't a lot of people to learn from at that time. You guys didn't have a lot of resources. You just kind of made it up as you went along. Well, I mean, we had we had the resource. We had Peter, so he brought all that to us. But um, in his way of doing most things, never was heavy-handed about it. It wasn't. um, um, He was not like a dictator of of learning, and you could only make sour beer one way. And and at the time, I mean, we could have believed that. We could have said this is how you do it, and that, and instead it was just like everything so far that's happened at New Belgium. It's so completely organic, um, just never forced. Always just kind of felt like we were like it was just the next thing to do, the next step. Just always came after the the one before, and the next one, and the next one, and then that and that was the creative the creative um, nurturing that definitely made New Belgium. Uh, and all the people and all the beers just become um, the thing that it is. How did how did you get selected to to be a part of this you know pioneering sour beer program? Not that you at the time knew that it was going to be right some giant pioneering thing. Selection is um, we it was just really open to um, all the people that wanted to do a little bit of extra work on the Thursdays. We would. Um, assemble some samples, you know, we had some forms and pencils and paper, pens and paper, and, you know, uh, we would just kind of walk through our um, nine, and then it turned into seven barrels. And I think that at the time, I was very interested in um, starting the sensory program at New Belgium, and I started studying um, um, a lot about sensory science, um, ended up taking a class, like classes through UC Davis and that, just became again organic, natural that I would um, begin uh, kind of gathering the data, and then in the times that we weren't uh, tasting as a group, I would taste just on my own, um, write down, write it down because I was definitely beginning to um, expand and develop my lexicons and um, sensory uh, beer language. So that seemed just elementary, um, and then I look back at it now, and it was. Um, just amazing luck. <laughs> well, some of the some of the best uh, things in brewing really are. Now, when you talk about your lexicon, that has become one of the more interesting and, and I think significant things in the world of of craft beer. When I first met you a number of years ago, back in the wood cellar, we you know we looked at your blending notebook, and over the over two decades, you developed uh, quite a language about describing sour beer. Um, there wasn't, you know, when, when we think about blending beer, you, you, you work through a process that goes from, you know, palate and taste buds, but in, into your brain where you tend to have to put words to things in order to describe them in a way. Uh, and then that kind of informs some of the way that you select beer and then blend beer, but that language didn't necessarily exist when you started to do this. And so, some of the, that language that you developed from those early days is now used industry-wide to describe some of this stuff. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think that there's definitely two sides of my sensory self. There was definitely the, when I was um, leading panels and leading trainings, uh, I, I was very, very um, objective, um, definitely learning, you know, what which ester, differences between esters and organic acids and that. But when I was tasting on my own and the um in the wood cellar both um i just needed to be very directional and so i just needed to know at the end of the day you know i'd write all these i started writing all the notes down just being very very loquacious and and then 
I, you know, I was just sitting down with Eric one day and he, he, I would write down, you know, stuff about what we're blending, when we're doing it, how much. And he just looked at my notebook and he was like, this is not telling me anything. You know, this is just a bunch of, you're just describing the beer. What do you want me to do with it? So that was a real epiphanal moment that I needed to not just describe the beer, but make sure that we understood where it was in the process. So the difference between um, a beer and is that, is it doing well? Is it in the place? Is it true to brand for that moment in time that we, or is it doing the expected thing? And if so, when do we need to, you know, should we wait on it? Is it doing great? And we just need to wait. Is it time? Is it um, time to be able, you know, it can blend out. It's something interesting in it. That's unique. Um, or is it the time that we need to um, put, you know, take it out and um, turn it into beer, um, refill it. Um, and those, those were very important things for me to do. And I needed to do it very quickly because I wasn't my full-time job. Um, not even my part-time job, not even <clears throat> my job. So I would, we would do, I would come in on weekends or, you know, after work, um, and taste the barrels. And I just got really quick about it. And so I would write, um, you know, write certain things. And then it just became like smiley face, you, you know, frowny face, heart, flower, you know, I would just, you know, tropical forest, or I'd say SPD means sick phase diacetyl. And I would just be able to get to the next thing. Um, and then that, then I could just look at this large list of barrels and just within seconds know exactly if something needed to happen and what that was and be able to then write, say that, take that and write it to Eric, you know, take 53, 94 and, you know, 10, they need to move, um, let's dump number three, blah, blah, you know, like, so that was the important part was to be able to make it directional and actionable. So in, in that, what are, what's the time frame that you taste these in? You know, like how quickly is that, that beer moving and how fast are you making those, those, those decisions? Those are, that's very, um, volumetric. Um, it's, uh, if I'm just dealing with like a 60 gallon wine barrel, um, they, you know, that if you're doing a full acidification, um, non-fermentation acidification in a barrel, it's, you know, it can be anywhere from three, four, five, six months. And you can, you can get away with not tasting for a couple months, you know, can just check a little check-ins, but those barrels move real fast. Once they, once the food starts become not becoming less and less and less and the bugs becoming itchier to try to, um, looking for that food, you really need to be very on it. And there is a moment in time where that barrel is perfect and that moment is very small when it's a small barrel and it is leisurely long when it's a 220 hectoliter um, fooder. You can, I mean, you have like a couple, three months sometimes to be able to make a decision. So that when um, I see, you know, you know, I always tease Andy at um, Avery because he just has, you know, thousands of barrels and I was just like what are you doing to yourself man <laughs> you know and I like I have the same amount of I can taste one fooder and he's you know tasting hundreds of barrels and each one of them just wants to turn on them at any second <laughs> you know and so and I just um, I can I'm looking at my barrel and barrels looking at me and I'm like are you okay he's like I'm cool um but I think that that's the thing is you just need to know those tells um, and so there's little tiny tells, you know, that will say what stage that they're in. 
Um, and the biggest tell is when it's something sour, it's hungry. There's no more food. And that's when you got to move. Yeah. So the sour program at New Belgium, you know, from over this 20 years has gone from nine wine barrels to 65 gigantic fooders, usually around 200 hectoliters a piece. Um, yeah. So they go from 25 to 60, 100, you know, 130, 200. They're all over the place. And so that's quite a ramp up, um, probably one of the bigger, if not the biggest, not the, not that the ist ist matters to anyone <laughs> um, other than best. <clears throat> um, and I think, yeah, that, that was a, that just like everything else, it was like the step by step. There was, there were, you know, seven, then there were 20, then there were 90 small barrels and then, and then there were four fooders and less small barrels. And that was a fun time to be at was Like, oh, this is so much easier. I love this. Um, and then you were like waiting for paint to dry. Then you're like, oh, when is this thing going <laughs> to um, do anything? And then we got, and then we had, you know, 10 uh, fooders and we had 16. And then we had, one day we had 32. And then we went, you know, the next you know a couple of years later we had 65 i mean it went from 32 to 65 that was the big ramp up that that i lost a lot of um years <laughs> um definitely turned a lot grayer in between that time trying to figure out how you go from 4000 hectoliters in barrels to 8000 hectoliters in barrels and then what to do with all that and those fooders were i mean those were a massive process i remember uh that going into the wood cellar back when you were rehydrating <laughs> some of those and oh uh, gosh what a know, nightmare fooder by fooder every uh, time someone says yeah like how do how do you select fooders i'm like just buy them from fooder crafters please <laughs> don't don't be there's no reason to, if you don't have to become a you know a, a, a repair and maintenance type of cooper like just don't um, it's so much easier and you can focus on the beer and not the barrel that's um, a really, really lu- luxurious and romantic thing. Yeah. And I remember at that time you had drawn down all of the wine barrel size stuff and there might've been eight or nine in the wood cellar oh, at yeah. that point, but you're back up again on that one. Yeah. I think that the, this is the, that we were talking about before the, you know, the cyclical, as we went through and the lips of faith program kind of came out and La Folie and La Terroir and like Tartlici and Eric sale, those things all started happening. And that was happening in a very larger format volume. And there was that day that we outgrew our cork line. And I was just, just ecstatic about not filling beer with I had the toilet plunger gravity filler. <laughs> I was just super pumped about that. And the first time that we made a, a blend. Like the largest blend we ever did was 1,800 hectoliters of Alafali, and it was so fun. I had the best time doing that, just trying to and create the same beer that I was doing in 20 hectoliters and as 1,800, and just being so surprised at how similar it tasted, and then just being able to pop a cap and drink it, it was just so great. And then you know, the craft industry became so much um we were just so incredibly popular and everybody wanted to drink craft beer and everybody wanted to drink the weirdest um sourest spiciest maltiest booziest thing in the world and um i think that that's definitely thank god yeah changed yeah. there's this this arc you know for you all like like we said you started corking and caging off of gravity filler you know the old early 2000s versions of La Folie and uh, 
Um, and but then at a certain point, you you all made the decision and the conscious decision to make sour beer more accessible to the entire country. Started pasteurizing the blends, bottling them, uh, capping them, um, putting them out there at really aggressive price points for sour beer yep. that made uh, that made sour beer more accessible to your average American consumer, uh, and got it out everywhere. But then we saw this next move in craft beer where consumers, if it was that readily available, started to look at it differently. Yeah, and, and you yeah. all are, are pivoting a bit now with your strategy. Well, around. I think it's kind of fun. We got to see all the stages. We know we got to, I got to make blends of the Lafayette blends that were very approachable, that you weren't, didn't, you know, challenge people, didn't make you you know, you could just be hanging out on the couch and drinking and talking with your friends and not completely having to uber analyze the beer. You're just um, having fun. And I think that that had its time and place and really brought a lot of people to sour beer. Um, and then now that it's kind of changing back where people really want things that are very unique and small batch. And um, at right at that time, I, you know, I I'd stopped to become I stopped doing the specialty brand management, and so that dogma of mine um, went away forcibly um, because somebody <laughs> else is making the decisions. And a cork line came back in, and you know the, that wasn't my decision to do that, but it it um, challenged me all over again because the um, making Ubruns there is a lot of safety. There's a big safety net in pasteurization and um, being able to just kind of blend whatever you want, not sloppily, but um, definitely not having to be perfect, uh, understanding the exact beer that needs to go into a bottle to be primed and bottle conditioned and, and then to be able to make really weird beers and have any idea how that's going to happen. And like, you know, 12 months later and then four months later after bottle conditioning, that's a really, um, it's like you almost have to be like a soothsayer to understand what's going to happen. That is, that's an interesting point. So, you know, if, when you bottle condition, you've got, you know, living organisms in there that can continue to work on whatever you've put in that beer. And unless you really know what those are going to do, um, you know, anything could happen. And we've certainly seen that in the world of of sour beer, bottles that don't carb, bottles that get out there and and explode. Not, not from New Belgium. Uh, Ask Chris Black about his 10th anniversary beer. uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And so, and so then, you know, some of those creative decisions may get driven by pragmatic process based concerns uh, that you didn't have to face when you, when you get to pasteurize it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's, there's still a time and place for that. Like we are creating sour saison is like that thing that I'm so happy, like as all those things were kind of going away, um, going back um, to the corking cage, sour saison came and which is a 20% sour golden um the felix and the saison and we were still doing like the imperial stout uh, sour stouts and things like that and i think that so i'll be able to make those larger um, more approachable beers for a lot of people um and for myself you know like i know that when eric and ted and i all sit down we're not just crushing you know 1.7 ta uh sours you know you really just want to have that so we still have that and then you Still, and then we're going back and creating lawfully again um, in a forty barrel, a forty hectoliter batch is um, that's going to be cork and cage. That's happening in a couple weeks from now. We'll do the f- well, actually, we're blending the final blend next week. 
Um, and then we will prime it and go into cork and cage for the first time since 2009. Corked and caged lawfully. Cork and cage lawfully. Wow. Cork and cage transatlantic for the first time, actually. Um, and La Terroir for the first time will be cork and caged. Well, that's that's whole whole whole, uh, whole hops. <laughs> I mean, we're just in, it's just the whole thing is completely changing again. And um, sometimes I feel like the Titanic trying to turn and just being so antiquated and just so like not ready for it. And I'm just like, I'm going to hit an iceberg. Um, but it's been also really challenging. And I am re- I'm just as excited as anybody else to taste it for the first time. So will there be a pasteurized edition of Lawfully then also? Or um, is- I will, we will make these bigger um, blends to go into kegs oh, okay. and that will go into the system and just, you know, need to be right, tapped. Right. And, you know, I'd love to think that every, if keg is being handled lovingly and it'll never get warm and um but that's not going to happen so just for the sheer practicality of that um those will still go through that process but those and those will be like a hundred and ten hectoliter batches which they used to be so much bigger so we're definitely right, you were just stepping saying eight, back 1800 hectoliters now yeah. down to 40 hectoliter batch of yep. corked engaged lawfully i feel like the tycoon of <laughs> sour beer <laughs> <laughs> You're going to make it so rare again, Lauren. Oh, yeah, I know. But not too rare. I just don't. Yeah, yeah like that's the thing that I, I I have so much trepidation about trying to make it exclusive or unapproachable or, you know, just there's some barrier in between uh, you and the beer. That's just such a um, it, it's it's scary for me to think that that can possibly happen. You know, culturally, I think that's an interesting question because beer fans and those that are seeking out this beer uh, and the thing that drives a lot of people toward craft beer is an excitement about something new mm-hmm. and, an exci- and wanting to try new things and try different things. And so, you know, that that mentality that drives people to drink craft beer at all is one, uh, you know, that, that pushes that concept of new, like, you know, we, the reason we like craft beer is because we enjoy new experiences and challenging yeah. ourselves, and so that's one part of it. Um, but in in that that from a business standpoint, it, it becomes hard to provide that new experience while also doing things in a consistent way that the overall business needs, uh, you know, so they can plan, organize, sell, and uh, right. all the other apparatus can can do their thing. Well, I think that the fun, the great thing about that is like the, as much as that is the drive for the craft beer drinker, it's the drive for the brewer as well, too. We are constantly like every, you, every single thing reminds me when I, anything that I'm trying new or different, I, if it's a new flavor, it's a new smell, it's a new, like just sometimes just a color. I'm just like, I, I want to make a beer. Um, everything drives me to try to experiment and make something new. Um, even if it's not 100% new, if it's new to me, um, it's incredibly exciting and, and new to me, new to New Belgium, new to like the wood cellar. If Ted, Eric and I are and the wood guys are all experimenting something new, it's going to taste different than anybody else because it just that's the fun part about the long acidification or fermentation in your own wood cellar with your own bugs. No matter if it, you make a blueberry sour um, 12 people can make it and it's not going to taste anything like the other one. 
Sure, sure. And so now that you're making a whole lot less lawfully, that leaves a lot of a lot of other uh, stock uh, right. to, to blend different beers with. And you all have gotten pretty aggressive about doing very small blends of other corked and caged beers, single fooder beers, uh, you know, getting into some some fruit additions, and then releasing them in very small ways straight out of the out right. of the. the the brewery over here in Fort Collins. I love that. I, well, there's the experimentation part and the, you know, if you're going to go as far out of the box as you possibly can, you're going to need a little bit of safety net. And I believe that doing the small batches and having no market release dates or expectations, um, pressure really makes you so much more expressive. So having those, we do, um, 10 hectoliter batches. Um, and we just, uh, um, had one that came out at the Lost in the Woods. We did the Chinese Five Spice. That was really fun. It's seven spices, and it was just a lot of information. Um, the and then we like, did so ten hectoliters. This is eight and a half beer barrels. Yes, I mean this is something that most breweries might brew on a pilot system, something that size. Well, and that's the I guess that's the biggest challenge for me is you know I'm like okay I have 130 hectoliter beer and I'm making a 10 hectoliter batch. What do you do with the rest of it? Um, so I'm getting really good at figuring just the Tetris of having so much beer and trying to how to utilize it in small amounts and keeping the fooders in a really great place because I used to take small amounts of beer out of the fooders and then refill them. And right at this time, the only non-organic or very hard thing is right when I made the very conscious decision and um, we started uh, experimenting like every single time we absolutely take the fooder completely down um and we drain um off the the top and the bottom we only kind of take the heart of the the fooder and we don't want the pellicle or any of the sludge on the bottom we drain it we might rinse we might not depending on how old that fooder is and then you have all that liquid and if i only need 10 hectoliters or 40 hectoliters of it trying to figure out so we do a lot of filling of Leopold Brothers whiskey barrels. I just want to take this second to congratulate Todd for being a James Beard Award winner. Um, Jay nominee. Goodwin. Nominee. Oh, yes. don't worry. It's, this is foreshadowing. Okay. Um, sorry. <laughs> Dang it. Um, nominee. And um, yeah, of that's... Of course, it would, be, it would be bittersweet if he won because there are other friends of yours that are also on that nominee list. I mean, I think that, that that's so true. Um, and I... Yes. I mean, I think that, that when... You were saying that Jester King and who? Yep, 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 yep. That would, I mean, so any of that would be right. such a wonderful and very, very much um, appreciated. And um, I just, you know, I personally deal with Todd Leopold so much that I don't think that I've ever met a person in any industry that cares so much about every single second of every single aspect of what they do and i think that that if that's just like that i mean i appreciate that and i know so many people do it's i think it'd be great for the world to see um but i that like being able to have that access to his barrels um and that freshness so we can split a fooder put some down in barrels make a little tiny batch make another you know a single fooder and all these so it's it's been really really fun and i know that like right now if you ask you know eric salazar yes ted peterson you ask all the guys in the wood cellar like is it fun like right now they're more like give me 
let me answer that again in June because we are just moving like no like you know never before we are just crushing it in there uh, you've been able to do some fun and weird projects like the uh, Gesha coffee <laughs> tell me a little well, bit about this one that was uh, quite a process that was quite a so that was we decided to do um, lawfully Grand Reserve um, so once a year we'll come out with a different expression of of lawfully of just like this blended uh, dark um, sour beer and the first one I was more like a challenge so we've, we've been making something called Oscar worthy coffee for quite some time now um, and that has been keg only um, so we just basically and there's been so many iterations of that dark sour you know with uh, coffee beans and then you we um, were only kegging it and there was this unbelievable like epiphanal aha moment of like I wish it's so sad to look at just flabby glasses of sour beer there's no foam there's just it just looks real pathetic and you just really want that to have even though it's almost nearly impossible you have sour beer you have coffee um essential oils on in there you're just it's not going to happen and that moment where we nitrogenated night is that a word um it is a word it is now um so we nitrogenated the the batch and it looked like crema on the top it just absolutely looked like coffee it smelled like coffee and then it was just a total just mind blown because you're like okay that is not what i thought even though the coffee did come out but then there was the challenge to not only um cork and do a, a bottling of it so we don't have a way to do that and then um <laughs> We then, and then not only that, but to use this um, Esmeralda, the Hacienda de Esmeralda um, Panamanian um, geisha bean that is the most expensive. $500 a pound. It was $601 oh. um, that went on auction. We didn't pay exactly that, but um, it... Um, it was just... How do you, I mean, how do you convince the accountants to spend Pressure on top of pressure. Oh, luckily I didn't. It wasn't my... Oh. Grand, you know, like it was there. Somebody else basically got that one through Andrew Emberton and um, the the crew of the specialty brand guys. It still was just a hilarious invoice to give somebody, yeah. um, especially when you saw the amount and the how many the dollars. pounds did you have to use? We ended up using 180 pounds. 180 pounds. Oh yeah, and even better when we composted the beans because we just did a whole bean extraction for a couple of days and then the yeah. rest. Um, was gone. Everybody, a couple of people tried to make coffee with it, and it was, it's terrible. <laughs> um, so, but that, you know, so you had one shot, and we um, did a lot of modifications on our little cork and cage line that could, and um, we ended up getting nitro, uh, like a nitro drip. Um, so it that basically held the the nitrogen um, in the headspace. Um, but then we basically we just pushed as much nitrogen as we possibly could into this tank, and then pushed some more and push some more and then we did these funny little cool um, on the way to the cork line because it's way too far away from our tank because nothing's perfect um you know we did like ice baths inside of open kegs just to try to keep the nitrogen in and the whole <laughs> thing was just um you know you're just i'm just biting your fingernails the entire way from the time that it was in the 
the tank. Um, and we just did all these fun things. We worked with uh, Troubadour Malting here in Fort Collins to try to, we called it the smuggler beer, where we're actually like putting, making this really foam stable um, base beer in order to kind of, we talked about, we were like smuggling the coffee oils into, or like, shh, don't tell the, the beer that <laughs> there's like, this is just straight oil we're putting in there. And the, the, the process being with um, the bean cycle roasters, I mean, that was pressure on them. We were like, here, here's all of our money in green beans. Don't, you know, like, good luck, you know, and Chaz and Leslie over there. They just rose to that occasion and just absolutely made the most amazing coffee. The, you know, the malting, the malt was fantastic. The, the smuggler beer was fantastic. And everybody just kind of, I don't think I've seen a beer because... There's everything said that there's no way that this is going to work. I mean, there was so many ways we could screw it up. And when the first we all got together, everybody was kind of involved and we popped the bottle and the cork went to the to the ceiling. Um, and that was it just in the and then we poured it and it cascaded and we were like, all right. I wish I could have just have retired at that second, <laughs> gone out, but instead that same day Somebody was like, oh, the beer that is the next beer that went through is complete failure. And I was like, just <laughs> one day. <laughs> oh. um, they were like, is this beer supposed to have these giant globs? And, you know, and I'm like, nope, that's great. <laughs> um, so there is this wonderful, but it was also so poignant. Like, there's you can't rest. You know, you can't just have that time because then you just get... Um, you know, you get lazy and arrogant and you just think that you're that cool and the beer is like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like, an, uh, you know, for a brewery, the scale of New Belgium, an immense amount of work to spend on, a, you know, a, a one-off release. You are not the first person that has said that. Yeah. Um, I would think I, I heard uh, mostly people, they're like, why are we doing this again? I'm like, because <laughs> we bought the beans Yeah. and we are doing it. There's no turning back now. Yeah. But I, but I guess it does, you know, speaks to what you were talking about before, um, challenging yourselves and finding new things to new places to go. Um, yeah, we and we realized there was in there's so many fun things about that beer that we learned that we're now applying to all the other things. So, you know, maybe not needing all the challenges in one beer, but on the other hand, the next three things we did, we absolutely applied all those things. And now we have a nitro drip. So now our, um, our oxygen level in the, the bottle is so much lower. So our yeast is so much happier. So our oxygen and our shelf life is so much better. And, um, so every beer after that is going to greatly, um, be the, the product the quality is so much better just because of that one beer. Well, that sounds like how you justified it to, uh, (laughs) you were in that meeting. (laughs) Um, earlier you mentioned that you, while well, you used to kind of use a Solera method and top up your fooders after you pulled some sour beer, and now you completely drain them out. Why, why that change in process? Uh, I just had, uh, I, I was asking one of our chemists, Dana Steen, I, I said, you know, it, it just occurs to me that if I was right in the middle of fermenting a beer, I wouldn't just take part of it out of the fermenter and then add more wort and then just be like, Hey, I'll be back in 13 more days. And I might do that again. Um, it just seemed like that might be a crazily disruptive to it. 
And, you know, there that is not so much, it's not wildly, um, it can bounce back, but there's just not so much uh, predictability. So when I was looking to be able to forecast all those, and when I have 65 fooders, it's one thing to be like, you know, have like 10, 15 small barrels, and you're like, you know, who knows how long this is going to take. Um, but sooner or later, I had that responsibility to um, forecast to be able to talk about how much raw material I'm going to need in a year, how much beer is going to come out of the barrels, what beers we're going to make, um, what size quantities. And, you know, so I really started taking that part serious for the brewery's sake. And it just, when you're taking 20 hectoliters out, putting some in, putting it, it just really disrupts the entire process. So you, you don't have that repeatability. And you also might like so if you just crazy things happen all of a sudden the the fooder's not happy and you have to kind of wait a little bit more and you don't really know exactly what's going to happen depending on how much you take out or put back in um and so that first time that i completely emptied a fooder like we were all standing around and a couple of people were like oh, it's not going to have much on the bottom like i was like I, I feel like there's a lot of sludge down there if you think about all the things living and dying in there all the things all the production all the living all the dying like there must be just an absolute just huge layer of dead mass at the bottom and so sure and that is good for the Britannomyces at some level but the first time we emptied one of the fooders it was a very an older one and I, there was like almost to my elbow the amount of dead yeast and dead bacteria just this um matter on the bottom and it smelled like pretty goaty um it was really pretty intense and so we just rinsed that entire thing out and i had been trying to describe um this this attribute that i didn't wasn't liking anymore in the barrels and i actually went um stacy williams up in um our lab is our gas chromatograph the gco the olfactory um expert up there and we sniffed we like I did a like sat there and sniffed um some barrels and tried to identify that moment and try to identify what the thing is because I'm describing it in one way dog food mm -hmm. and all these different weird like sweaty kind of things and there were so many caprylic notes capric and caprylic notes in that beer at the very long end of the tail of that um process that it just started really speaking to Maybe I should clean this thing out. Yeah. Um, and that next barrel, the time that we fill, refilled, it was such a bright, beautiful, and it, everybody was really scared. Oh, we're going to dump all the culture. We're not going to um, have our, it's, we're going to get rid of it. We need to re-inoculate the barrel. But we, I was like, let's just let it fly. Um, this barrel has been here for so long. It's got to be ingrained in the wood. Rinsed it completely out with deaerated de water for a very long time. And then just refilled it with... Um, filtered uh fermented beer and within two weeks it was just like taken off and it was it's so bright it's so beautiful i won't do i won't rinse every single time i want there to be sure. a little bit of those fun things for the bread on a munch on the bottom but it it just was a moment where i was like oh now i can start the clock at zero again and know exactly that in 12 months from now um i should expect to be able to fill empty this again um, it takes a lot of the magic and the art out of it. And some people think that that's kind of blasphemous. But um, on the other hand, it puts a lot more. I sleep really well at night. 
Um, I love statistics because on one hand, you are very artful. On the other hand, you really love to be able to um, – I'm a, I'm a big planner. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's fascinating that you were able to get within two weeks – in that volume of liquid, uh, fully actively fermenting beer just out of what was sitting in the walls of that wood fooder. Right. It's, um, it's a jungle in there. Um, we've had, we've had, a couple of people have definitely done some speciation, numeration, speciation, (laughs) speciation of the living things that are in our barrels. And over this 20 years, you know, we've never re-inoculated, so we keep, um, it's like a pro- proliferation of the best barrel. So even though in the beginning it started very specifically, very specific, Pediococcus lactobacillus Britannomyces, um, in the barrels, it then became just what tastes the best, and let's make sure that the new barrels get that. And so that happened all the way through 65, fooders and all the, the 200, 300 plus barrels, we small barrels we have now, and um that makes for a really scary thing if you're really just thinking about like being so like um specific a lot of people like empty out their barrels and then you know steam them and clean them almost cip almost give it a mm-hmm. full clean and then they re reintroduce because they want something so specific whereas we just want the bugs to be as happy as possible so they've selected themselves they in this harsh environment of the dry, the desert plains of Fort Collins, this is not exactly, you know, Belgium. So we don't, um, we're not in the most ideal condition. So we just kind of let them do that. But on the other hand, you know, we, there, everybody is in there, you know, 200 things living, all the breaths, all the lactose, all, even ones that we didn't even know existed. Now, mm. now we do <laughs> the ones that seem like breath, but they're not the ones that are, don't seem like bread, but they are. <laughs> well, you raise an interesting question. I mean, I, I think there may be some misconceptions even about, you know, the way that the Belgians do that because, you know, most, most Lambic brewers, they're, they're not steaming their barrels. They're, yeah, so, it really is A lot of them are different. just rinsing. And if mm-hmm. you're Girard, I think they, they clean them out with chains. Yep. I, I mean, and well, it's a and very Garrett, low and, bar for, uh, you know, for cleaning out those. Well, uh, Garrett from Ubersel is just wildly meticulous about yeah. cleaning his barrels and fooders. Like yeah. he is absolutely thinks it's, when you, when I told him, oh, I just, there was throw some new beer in there and he was aghast yeah um that how, you know how can we but he is so much more scientific than the rest of the mm. the um lambic makers there and so i think that that's just such a fun thing to think about like we're all so different every single blender brewer um spontaneous fermentation like there's so many ways to do this and everybody can be the individual that they are as long as the beer that's coming out of it is you know, tastes fantastic and doesn't hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that that's all we really, um, everything else is completely up to you. And I, 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 I like that idea that uh, um, it's fantastic that you might use a certain process. That's great. Mm-hmm. Does it make good beer? And if it doesn't make good beer, right. then does that matter? Is it great just because of the process? No. Um, it's just another process. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of, there is some people, there is a lot of people that do hold a lot of things like sacred and other things like they think they're not as great, but it's all hard. 
You yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> once you throw wild yeast and and souring bacteria in it, it's just not that easy anymore. Not that fermentation is. I mean, brewing. You know, a lot of people just think that brewing beer is, you know, ferment the fermentation process and being able to do it um, repeatedly, much less uh, than add bugs um, and quote unquote wild yeast. It's just an absolute. Um, if you are just not super observant and you are just not there for the long haul, like you're not going to do it right. So you were recent, uh, in years past, you've had the dual title of specialty brand manager, which meant you also kind of planned the business side and, uh, interfaced with your sales and marketing folks and did all the, the planning. And you've been able to hand that title over to Andrew at New Belgium. Yes. And you're now your title is strictly wood seller, director and blender. Yep. First time I have, I have one job, one job. <laughs> um, uh, you've mentioned to me before that that has afforded you more time to get a little more analytical about what you're doing with your wood beer uh, and work with that lab in New Belgium, you know, as a benefit of the scale that you all are, has a fantastic lab and some great staff that are able to help you do that. Um, so what what have you been doing on that analytical side and, and how is that helping you uh, make beer that's closer to, to what you uh, envision I think uh, it's more helped me be, to be um, able to be to be able to forecast and to be able to understand if thens. Um, so working with uh, Jeff Irby a lot in uh, the analytical lab, um, he is one of our chemists, and we he he's been just tirelessly he and Justin tirelessly um, sampling those the fooders. I mean, sometimes I I a lot of times I'm. I mean, I'm appreciative. I feel really bad because we've been doing it for two years and only just for me to learn um, if. And so to the point where I we do um, about 10 organic acids, about eight um, esters and uh, some phenols, um, of course, acetaldehyde, diacetyl, a um, couple of markers, uh, PHTA, um, um, uh, like basically like volatiles, all, all those guys, um, ABV and all that. But what I've been able to do is watch, I've been able to take each size fooder, um, and kind of group them. The, these kind of act the same, these act the same, um, and try to do, be able to predictive, do predictive modeling, um, and finding the markers that matter. Um, so for us, isoamyl acetate matters that the ester that matters at the very end. So I have like stages at, at one month. Um, we check the fooders just to see if they're alive. Um, so I just do um, ABV um, and gravity. I just really and pH. I just really want to see uh, um, if the pH is dropping. Like that alone, I know things are happening. And then I kind of do a diacetyl. Um, check at two months. That means that they're kind of just like any other fermentation. Um, it it definitely tells you a lot. And at five months, five to six months, and almost every single size fooder, no matter what size, like most of the organic acids have been produced. So the acidity itself is there. Um, it'll go up a little bit, of course, over the the course of the months. But I just need to know if, if it's where I think it's going to be. I know that that's a very healthy fooder. And that the bugs have reproduced enough, and there's they're they're acclimated to the amount of of uh, food that's in there, and they're the 
gravity's dropping, the acids are going up. Um, and then there's like a stabilization. And that, that's the ester. For me, it's when the isoamyl acetate drops below a certain point. Um, then I know that, and I look at the gravity, I look at the ABV, I look at the acids, I look at the, that last, the ester, then I know it's stable. Um, and then I know that not only is it sour, but it's perceivably sour because all those esters and, you know, whatever left of the sugars are in there, they're actually masking a lot of the sour notes. And so it still has, tastes like beery, as we call it, um, the technical word of beery. And when that kind of drops out, there's much more brightness and focused sour notes to it. And you know that you need to move it because the food is now not there. And so the barrels, the, the beer starts getting hungry. Um, and that's, you have a couple, a little bit of time and then there's the hangry stage and you just really got to move. Um, because you know, the, what we've seen a lot of times is pellicle just drops, um, acetic acid starts forming and that's just not a, at that point, it's just too late. If you're going to, especially if you're going to do a live bottling, like once you've pushed your barrel to that, it's going to just going to get worse in the bottle. Interesting. So, so, uh, when you're making those kinds of decisions, do you lead the sensory and then follow with data? Is data yes. or does data make it's more of the decisions? So, yeah, for it's so tempting to look at the numbers first. Yeah. Um, and I just do this. I make sure I keep myself very honest, and we always do sensory first. So we always sit down, and you know, I I look at the. Um, I know I look at the fooders. I'm like, okay, we're, we're going to taste these five today because um, they're at this point. Let's taste them. And I usually don't even tell, you know, like Ted or Eric, whoever's tasting with me, like I don't tell them anything about the fooders. Um, so they even are less biased than I am. And like we write notes and then I lay over without anybody else. I lay over the uh, analytical and I've actually made, I'm like a wild fan of decision trees. So I, I like making decision trees for everything. So I have like, is the fooder ready? And I have one for Oscar, one for Felix, and then um, the two different base beers and just different size fooders. It kind of goes from there. Um, and it checks things. It has sensory checks, time checks, and analytical checks. And then it will basically just take you through. If you just answer all the questions, it will tell you whether or not the fooder's ready. And um, that somebody was just like, you totally killed it you're like that's not even close to being fun (laughs) and I was like yes it is wildly fun for me um but yeah I get the I mean there's no magic in it but the sensory part is but it it just it can't be all sensory because then you could you could be making the wrong wrong decisions it's it's that sounds like a bit of humility there uh but I imagine there still is something to honing your palate and being able to make sure that you can taste some of these things and accurately describe where those, where those are in that process. Right. And we've actually brought in um, our, uh, our sensory panel. Like we do a lot more tasting in groups. I don't do blending and I don't do final, but we do, I want, we, I wanted to bring a lot more people into that process because, you know, as I age, as you get older, your palate definitely isn't as great as it used to be. And the last thing I want to do is like be that blender that doesn't know, you know, when they're like, Shh, don't tell her, but she, that's not good at that <laughs> yeah, anymore. Yeah. So it's a, it's a check. It's a double check. Um, I, I always taste with, you know, I, I'll do um, small, my own um, tastings, but if I'm going to do a blend, I always have, um, like Ted and or Eric, you know, like 
a lot of times to the group. And then we taste every week at our wood cellar meetings. I really want them to double check me. Um, I really want them to be part of the process. And, and then sensory is kind of like our last check. That's so you, you've also are building a legacy for that program. Yeah. And can't live forever. Passing that down <laughs> to, to future generations. But it sounds like you've trained quite a few people at, at New Belgium in that those dark arts of. Well, I think that the, just like every, everything at New Belgium, like you, I, you find it fun and interesting and then you move on. So sensory was like that. You know, I, I loved it, but I hired really wonderful people and you move on. And the same thing with specialty brand management or educational programs that I've written. You know, there's people running those things now. Um, Road Brew or uh, Beer Mentor and Beer Confidence and um, other people are running those programs. And then. The last thing, you know, especially brands, you know, there's somebody who's running that doing so much better than I ever did. Um, that one, I'm like, yeah, that one, I just, it's not, a, I didn't hand it off. I just needed to stop um, that one. Um, but the same thing with this, like uh, Ted, Ted is going to be, um, Eric easily can do this. Um, and, and But Ted is the, the next person that will do this. Um, Ted Peterson is hopefully um, one day will be able to, when I kind of leave that process and we we're doing it now a little bit at a time. That's an interesting one to talk about because I think that, um, that process of uh, building succession into any, any business brewing or otherwise can be a challenging one. And that's something that new Belgium is even facing right now as longtime brewmaster, Peter Bruchart kind of moves into uh, his, his own business, uh, and outside of the brewery um, and separating and, and to do something else. But it seems like as an institution, you all have, you've got a strong bench and you've you've been able to build up uh, that next generation of folks to, to step into those roles. Yeah, I, that part is, it. that part has been so well and overstated because you have to hear it. You know, it's not easy to hear you need to have a succession plan because that it's very, um, dangerous to some people you know they're like well I'm, I'm never leaving or if i if i do this then somebody is going to usurp me and uh, i will be no longer needed here and that's absolutely not true and it, it's your utter responsibility to make sure that you have several people that understand exactly what you do all the time and that's hard in this job um, and I have to try to explain the most ridiculously complex, convoluted things. And, you know, you just see people glaze over and you're, and they're like, why is everything so hard that you do? I'm like, I don't know. I, I just like complexity. I like the concept. I like the challenge. But if you don't do that, and Kim Jordan is stated it and she did it herself and she is, you know, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. And, she, you know, she definitely said, if you don't have a succession plan, if you don't, if you're not mentoring somebody, if you're not passing along the, your knowledge, you're doing New Belgium a disservice. That is a, but it's a hard thing. I mean, you have to have a culture within the business that um, doesn't allow for that kind of uh over competitive usurping or uh you know that that can sustain that and trust that as you train people the there's going to be a place for them in the business and there's the other the other challenges you face in brewing is as you train these talented people um you know a certain percentage of them are going to want to go do their own thing with that knowledge yeah i would th say that's the scarier part is uh, you know or or that's just the more 
not disappointing. It's just like there's been a lot of that. Of course, as the industry grew and you just put a lot of time and effort and energy and love and money into people, and then they're like, see ya. Um, but the the thing that I find a little um, um, fun and maybe funny about it is like a lot of times they come back. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dangerous, cruel world out there. <laughs> um, and they're like, oh, then you're like, oh, come back. And, you know, New Belgium is very great about op- being open-armed about it. That's an interesting point. Those days of uh, we can go start our own brewery and it's going to be successful are have rapidly waned over the past oh yeah or that you know you're going to be treated so much better make a bazillion more dollars or and then you're like oh yeah that's right it was pretty great here yeah yeah (laughs) and you know with new belgium that culture of employee ownership i I imagine has helped uh you know keep some people engaged for a longer term you've you've been there 20 years somehow they've kept you around well i think that for me i never i never started out to want to be in the brewing industry. And so it was the culture. It was, you know, being, I was trained to do, be a social worker. And so that um, Kim's utopia, utopia kind of um, community and corporation just absolutely got me. And that's what keeps me there the whole time is that even, at, even as we are becoming a very large corporation, it's still, I still can look around every day and see people that I love and respect and I know love and respect me and that just keeps you coming. So what what are you most excited about uh, that's coming up in the next, uh, you know, six to 12 months uh, that you can, that you could actually tell me uh, about? Well, I mean, so we, oh, the, um, the night terroir. <laughs> trademarked we didn't get that one um i think it's, it's i can't remember it's called it's the dark um the lawfully kind of version hop the dry hop version of that we just did a prototype and we had it at the lost and woods party of le terroir uh le terroir but it's, so it's so it's dark it's the oscar and okay. then that everybody's always said like you know you should dry hop that beer and i've tried it a couple times and um there's a couple of experimental hops that just kind of came out recently uh the hbc 472 and 438 if for all you hop nerds on your like most people are like oh yeah i know exactly what that is but they are said to have like this kind of cedar and coconutty kind of thing and um one of them we so we tried both of them and i did not expect either to work at all and um 438 did work really well the 472 is almost too dovetaily the the crazy things that the reason why you're using it all these kind of wood notes and in almost sour kind of notes lime and all these they almost just faded out and so all the things that made that hop interesting were already in the beer so that was not great um but 438 which is a daughter vice versa um of the other when i tasted it the first time it had so all the beer things and all the the hop things, it actually turned it into what I my first thought was mai tai. It had um, these dark sugary molasses kind of like rummy notes to it. Pineapple, breta, the um, the orgeat, the floral, the um, the orange, the almond, um, and the lime, and they all and with kind of like this cherry note, they all were there. And I love mai tais. and uh um i definitely so that was like that's something that i'm really excited about that we're going to then um make this and uh 
do a little small cork and cage. We're getting some whole leaf hops for that for next year. And um, that and just um, working with Todd um, Leopold a little bit on the on a beer that we're kind of using some ingredients that are much more indicative in the, the distilling process. And then he's been seasoning some barrels, some neutral barrels with different spirits. Like we have the, the an orange American orange liqueur barrels coming in um, that we'll do some acidification in. And just uh, every day I wake up and I think of like 12 new fun things to do. So, and one great thing, another great thing about New Belgium is like, so for instance, we did a peach harvest ale last year, or yeah, last year, and we got the, this peach puree from Big B, which is on the Western Slope. That is just unbelievable, the product. And of course, like you know, we bought this giant amount to make this giant amount of this harvest ale beer, and we were off forecast, not a lot, but it turned out to be like you know a dozen barrel, a dozen drums of peach puree. <laughs> so I am like this unbelievable, I, the, the waste stream that, you know, the, the leftover stuff is kind of dynamite. So making these small amount, these small bar- batch barrel, these small batches, um, I can very much utilize like these little things that are kind of leftover, these really interesting ingredients and use them in a different way. And, um, and, you know, they're appreciative that I'm using them when when I would never be able to afford them myself. So you are the, the living Britannomyces of New Belgian brewing, <laughs> I will, I will scouring and eating, consuming. Yeah, I'm looking through inventories constantly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a fun way to think about it. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. We've, we've made it through this entire podcast without cracking open a beer. And uh, now that we're bringing it to a close, uh, I, I know you have a thing for barrel-aged Abraxas. Well, it's so, a little, it's a little problem. Just a little problem. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna part ways and, and drink this bottle of barrel-aged Abraxas right now. But before we go, I just want to say this episode of the Craft Beer and Bring podcast has been brought to you by Keg Logistics. Whether you're a startup or a national brewer, you can mix and match keg programs as your brewery grows. Own your kegs by building equity with every payment through their rent-to-own program. Their pay-per-fill solution is perfect for expanding to out-of-state markets, but their flex-term rentals cover summer season needs. Exporting beer to or from the EU, ship your beer in their one-way steel kegs. Keg Logistics covers your freight needs and can ship kegs, beer, and everything else that hits your brewery's dock. Uh, if you want to learn more about New Belgium's wood program, Lauren, I, what's it, newbelgium.com? Yep. Same as it ever was, newbelgium.com for all your beer needs. Fantastic. And uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, we would encourage you to subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast platform, uh, Apple, iTunes, uh, and, and many others. And if you want to uh, follow our magazine, beerandbrewing.com is the place. Uh, subscribe to the print issue because print is not dead. And it's the most fantastic and wonderful way to consume our content. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us here in the Craft Beer and Brewing office today. It is an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.